projectiles won't fall. My hand gropes among the gravel. I believe I've been hurt. I try to move my legs to lift my head. Not one of my muscles obeys me. Mama, the child cries. I'm over here, I mean. And there she is, Mama, emerging from behind a curtain of smoke. She advances through the suspended debris amid petrified gestures, past mouths opened upon the abyss. For a moment, because of her milk-white veil and her tormented look, I take her for the virgin. My mother was always like this, radiant and sad at the same time, like a candle. When she placed her hand on my burning forehead, she took away all my fever and all my cares. And now she's here. Her magic powers are still intact. A shudder runs through me from my feet to my head, setting everything free and unleashing delirium. The flames start their macabre movement again. The exploded fragments resume their trajectories, and panic comes flooding back in. A man in rags, with blackened face and arms, tries to approach the blazing automobile. Although he's gravely wounded, some reserve of stubbornness moves him to try to help the sheikh, no matter what the cost. Every time he puts his hand on the door of the car, a jet of flames drives him back. Inside the blasted vehicle the trapped bodies are burning. Two blood-covered specters approach from the other side and try to force open the rear door. I see them screaming orders or crying out in pain, but I don't hear them. Not far from where I'm lying, an old man stares at me stupidly. He doesn't seem to realize his guts are exposed to the air and his blood is streaming toward the crater in the street. A wounded man with an enormous smoking stain on his back is crawling across the rubble. He passes quite close to me, groaning and panic-stricken, and gives up the ghost a little farther on, his eyes wide open as if he's still denying that such a thing could happen to him. To him. The two specters finally break the windshield and dive into the automobile. Other survivors come to their aid. With their bare hands they pull apart the flaming vehicle, break the windows, tear off the doors, and succeed in extracting the sheikh's body. A dozen arms lift him up, carry him away from the inferno and lay him down on the sidewalk, while a flurry of other hands strives to beat the fire out of his clothes. A deep, intense tingling makes its presence felt in my hip. My trousers have almost disappeared, only a few strips of scorched cloth cover me here and there. Against my side, grotesque and horrible, my leg is lying, still connected to my thigh by a thin ribbon of flesh. Suddenly all my strength deserts me. I have the sensation that my fibers are separating from one another, already decomposing. At last I hear something. The wailing of an ambulance. And little by little the noises of the street return, break over me like waves, stun me. Someone bends over my body, gives it a summary examination with his stethoscope, and goes away. I see him stoop before a heap of charred flesh, take its pulse, and then make a sign to some stretcher-bearers. A man comes to me, 
picks up my wrist and lets it fall again. This one's a goner. We can't do anything for him. I'd like to hold him back and force him to reconsider his assessment, but my arm mutinies, refusing to obey me. The child starts crying out again, Mamma. I look for my mother amid the chaos and discover only orchards, stretching as far as I can see. Grandfather's orchards, the orchards of the patriarch, a land of orange trees where every day was summer, and a dreaming boy on the crest of a hill. The sky is limpid blue. Everywhere the orange trees are holding out their arms to one another. The child is twelve years old, with a porcelain heart. At his age, there's so much to love at first sight, and simply because his trust runs as deep as his joy, he thinks of devouring the moon like a fruit, convinced that he need only reach out his hand to gather up the happiness of all the world. And there, before my eyes, despite the tragedy that has just ruined forever my memory of that distant day, despite the bodies of the dying scattered in the street and the flames that have now completely overwhelmed the sheikh's automobile, the boy bounds to his feet, his arms spread like a kestrel's wings, and goes running across the fields where every tree is enchanted. Tears furrow my cheeks. Whoever told you a man mustn't cry doesn't know what it means to be a man, my father declared when he came upon me, weeping and distraught in the patriarch's funeral chamber. There's no shame in crying, my boy. Tears are the noblest things we have. Since I refused to release my grandfather's hand, my father knelt before me and took me in his arms. There's no use staying here, he said. The dead are dead. They're over. They've served their time. As for the living, they're ghosts too. They're just early for their appointment. Two bearers pick me up and put me on a stretcher. An ambulance backs up to us its rear doors wide open. Arms pull me inside and practically throw me among some other corpses. In my final throes I hear myself sob. God, if this is some horrible nightmare, let me wake up, and soon. 1. After the operation, Ezra Benheim, our hospital director, comes to see me in my office. He's an alert, lively gentleman, despite his sixty-odd years and his increasing corpulence. Around the hospital he's known as the Sergeant, because he's an outrageous despot with a sense of humor that always seems to show up a little late. But when the going gets tough, he's the first to roll up his sleeves and the last to leave the shop. Before I became a naturalized Israeli citizen, back when I was a young surgeon moving heaven and earth to get licensed, he was there. Even though he was still just a modest chief of service at the time, he used the little influence his position afforded him to keep my detractors at bay. In those days it was hard for a son of Bedouins to join the brotherhood of the highly educated elite without provoking a sort of reflexive disgust.
The other medical school graduates in my class were wealthy young Jews who wore gold chain bracelets and parked their convertibles in the hospital lot. They looked down their noses at me and perceived each of my successes as a threat to their social standing. And so whenever one of them pushed me too far, Ezra wouldn't even want to know who started first. He took my side as a matter of course. He pushes the door open without knocking, comes in, and looks at me with his head tilted to one side and the hint of a smile on his lips. This is his way of communicating his satisfaction. Then, after I pivot my armchair to face him, he takes off his glasses, wipes them on the front of his lap coat, and says, It looks like you had to go all the way to the next world to bring your patient back. Let's not exaggerate. He puts his glasses back on his nose, flares his unattractive nostrils, nods his head. Then, after a brief meditation, his face regains its austerity. Are you coming to the club this evening? Not possible. My wife's due home tonight. What about our return match? Which one? You haven't won a single game against me. You're not fair, I mean. You always take advantage of my bad days and score lots of points, but today, when I feel great, you back out. I lean far back in my chair so I can stare at him properly. You know what it is, my poor old Ezra? You don't have as much punch as you used to, and I hate myself for taking advantage of you. Don't bury me quite yet. Sooner or later I'm going to shut you up once and for all. You don't need a racket for that. A simple suspension would do the trick. He promises to think about it, brings a finger to his temple in a casual salute, and goes back to badgering the nurses in the corridors. Once I'm alone, I try to go back to where I was.